Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be here. And Haley Knopf. What is up? The Supreme Court is what is up, guys. Yeah. <laughs> We're in that very busy week where we get the last and often impactful and giant opinions of the term. So wanted to give two sort of little notes about today's show. One Later in the show, we have on Vin Guerreri to talk about a key employment ruling that came out this morning about religious discrimination and what kind of accommodations employers have to make for religious workers. So that's an interesting chat to look forward to. But also wanted to give a special shout out to our friends over at The Term, who, of course, are covering all sorts of things that we're not going to get to. Working over term, I think. Oh, wow, Alex. (laughs) They sure are. Yeah, so we got the affirmative action ruling today. That was much anticipated. That will be thoroughly covered on the term. So if you're keen on that case, please listen to our sister show. They have that one covered. Going to have a great chat on that episode. But we do have a few, even before we get to the meat of this week's show, we are so chock-a-block that there are a few items that have been in the news on past episodes of Pro Se that we wanted to clean up a little bit. There are some updates to share. Amber, I think you uh, have something on the exciting chat GPT lawyer scam front. Well, honestly, I had so much fun talking about that back in episode 300. And for anybody that maybe missed that episode, it was sort of a cautionary tale of two personal injury attorneys who submitted a brief that was written by artificial intelligence. And that brief actually cited non-existent case law. So about the biggest mistake you can make with AI in the legal system would be that. And why I'm bringing it up again on today's show is just a really quick update that, as anticipated, the judge was not happy about this and late last week sanctioned those attorneys for abandoning their responsibilities to check their work and said their behavior rose to the level of bad faith, in part because they waited weeks to come clean about exactly what had happened. So, as is often the case, it's not just the action that's bad, it's the sort of cover-up or perceived cover-up. So, that's what happened to these guys. And The attorneys were ordered to submit a letter to their client explaining the whole ordeal, send a similar letter to the real judges that ChatGPT had cited as authors of (laughs) fake opinions. So that little wrinkle kind of makes me laugh. Like, you have to be like, I'm sorry, we misrepresented things you never actually did, judge. This feels like (laughs) a a punishment that you would get in elementary school. Yeah, (laughs) writing. Yeah, this is the version of writing on the blackboard a million times, you know. You didn't say that <laughs> that oil tankers have personhood. You didn't say that. <laughs> the, the AI said that you said that, and then I submitted that. That's pretty much what that letter's going to be. And the more traditional sanction here is they also have to pay $5,000 as a fine. So this really does sort of take seriously that whole story that we did joke a bit about because there's something silly about this AI of it all. But I think it's a good object lesson for attorneys to be really careful when they use things like ChatGPT. Speaking of cautionary tales, we have another update. You will recall we recently discussed the scandal involving a former pair of Louis Brisboy partners who had uh, some emails from their past dug up after they left and took over 100 attorneys with them and launched a new firm. Louis Brisboy came out and said, oh, look at these emails from them in which they are using very offensive language, making derogatory remarks, racist remarks, misogynistic remarks. Well, the, uh, the, the update here is now 
Los Angeles County has announced that it is cutting ties with Louis Brisbois. It did not say that specifically it's because of those emails, but um, in a statement, it did say, our office expects that law firms with whom we contract actively promote and practice inclusion, diversity, equity, and anti-racism and treat everyone in their workforce with dignity and respect. So a little bit of a call out there, I would say. Yeah, it's an interesting update, Haley, because as you said, those two attorneys whose emails were unearthed had formed a new firm and they're already out of the new place too. But this blowback is coming at Lewis Brisbois. So it is that is. is an interesting wrinkle to this development. As I said at the top, there's no shortage of news this week. And before we get to the Supreme Court news that we're tackling today, I wanted to talk about a healthcare fraud case brought by the U.S. Department of Justice that probably wouldn't have been such a big deal if it had gone along a normal track, at least for us uh, here on Pro Se. But this particular case has been unraveling slowly over the past several months amid findings of prosecutorial misconduct by the government. That has made for some splashy headlines, but the Texas judge that is overseeing the case said this week that he will likely allow the case to be retried despite the defendant's cries of double jeopardy and arguments that the case should just be thrown out entirely given these these missteps by the government. Few different interesting angles to explore here, and I I think it merits some examination from us. I'm very interested always when there's allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. I mean, this is not a garden variety thing that happens all the time for the government to be messing up a case. What do we need to know about that in this instance? Yeah, so I don't want to confuse the issue too much because it's a kind of weedy case about healthcare fraud. And it began as a fairly straightforward kickback scheme that saw five defendants accused of defrauding the government and other healthcare programs by overcharging or, or overprescribing to various patients, um, all to the tune of about $140 million between 2013 and 2017. Those are the, the basic allegations. But at trial in December of last year, it came to light that an expert witness for the government that was tasked with basically summarizing key financial documents in the case did not disclose that the source of the information that informed their testimony, a lot of it came from reports prepared by the FBI. Now, this is sort of a delicate area of preparing expert testimony. The idea being that, of course, the government is going to put experts on the stand that are going to be supportive to its case. But what came out in these disclosures was that this expert was basically just regurgitating. It basically allows the FBI to just make its arguments through the facade of an expert witness, right? And that opened up this whole can of worms where a deeper look from the judge revealed that at least six other witnesses were also affected by the government prosecutors' failure to disclose the source of their testimony and in certain instances withheld uh, potentially exculpatory evidence from their own experts' testimony, which we've been through this dance enough times to know that's a huge no-no if you're trying a case. And now after there were some attempts that were made to just kind of strike 
this compromised expert testimony from the record entirely, but that became a little too onerous in the view of this judge, and he decided to just declare a mistrial entirely, and that led to some follow-on investigations and a bunch of fallout here, which led to what we're going to be talking about in terms of what was decided this week. Yeah, let's talk about that fallout. So you said there are some follow-on investigations. I'm sure the defendants, you know, were not pleased with the prosecutors and weren't happy about continuing to work with them. What all went down? Yeah, what came out of this was actually a pretty interesting philosophical like back and forth about when a trial is so compromised that it can never be carried out in good faith or whether it can just be restarted again. That's basically what we're talking about. And as you say, Haley, the defendants were not happy about it. They began filing just a flurry of motions to kill the case entirely rather than allow for a retrial. There were a bunch of there were hearings and briefs on the extent of the government's mistakes and whether the sort of central question amounted to whether it, the mistakes that were made were like actively deceptive or were just simple oversights. And there were a ton of arguments made, and I would encourage everyone to read the coverage by our own Catherine Marfin. She did a great job or she, she has done a great job, rather, over the last like six or seven months covering this. But at one point, an attorney for one defendant summed up this whole dispute pretty concisely, I would say, basically saying that the court should not allow the government to have the opportunity to try the case on its first try with some shady, subversive tactics. And then if they get caught, they're just allowed a redo, that that's not really how the justice system is supposed to work. Here was a quote from one of the defendant attorneys that Catherine spoke to. The Constitution cannot permit the government to retry a case after engaging in misconduct serious enough to cause a mistrial. Otherwise, the message is that prosecutors have carte blanche to try a case dirty the first time and, only if they get caught, can retry the case clean a second time. That can't be the law. So that's a fairly compelling argument, but there were some more mitigating factors here, which I think we can get to. Okay, you did indicate that the the court has given some signals that it is going to go for a retrial. What What's going on with that, given the quote you just read, which did sound pretty compelling? It is, yeah. And I, that that's why I think this is such an interesting case. The Texas judge who is hearing the case is named Alfred Bennett. And basically, what it comes down to is that this judge found that the government's missteps were not, in his view, quote, malicious or intentionally fraudulent. And he still said that he was obviously very disappointed that this had happened, that there seemed to be some confusion or some like crosstalk of how these expert witnesses would be prepared. And he still, crucially, held open you know, sanctions for the lawyers who prosecuted the case. Um, I also want to say, I, I mentioned this up top, at least one defendant raised double jeopardy concerns about basically being tried twice for the same offense. But the judge ruled that that concept doesn't really apply here as in the instance that faced him in December, the declaration of a mistrial was, quote, manifestly necessary. And that language is one of the most lawyerly phrases I've ever heard, manifestly necessary. That refers to like a very old, like 19th century Supreme Court precedent 
that basically lays out the circumstances in which a fair outcome is impossible at trial, meaning you would just have to start over. And basically what that amounts to is that the judge said that, you know, if he had just stopped the case cold and thrown it out entirely upon the revelation of these government, you know, missteps, any outcome there would have been viewed as unjust and that the best course of action is to just start fresh. Here is what the judge wrote in his order this week, again, which basically signals that they will be conducting a retrial. Based on the court's own review and the results of the government's own investigation into its trial team's actions, the prosecutors did not withhold the legally required Brady disclosures with nefarious intent or motive. The failure to disclose by the government's trial team was clearly substandard of the conduct expected of prosecutors appearing before this court and must not happen again. So, you know, you can read between the lines there and just basically say, it's a mistake. I'm not happy about it, but it doesn't it doesn't rise to the level of fraud on this court or intentionally deceptive. And all that adds up to another bite at the apple for the government in this healthcare fraud case. Let's turn now to a massive historic settlement over drinking water contamination from PFAS or so-called forever chemicals. 3M has agreed to pay $12.5 billion to end litigation, alleging that it's firefighting foam leached the chemicals into drinking public water systems. This is obviously a big deal because of the dollar amount here. Attorneys representing the public water systems have touted it as the largest settlement over drinking water in U.S. history. But it's also interesting because PFAS litigation is everywhere. And settlements like this are starting to occur with a little more frequency. I am very interested to hear about this specific settlement, but also. I will admit, I don't know a ton about forever chemicals other than that is a very memorable term. So set me straight. What are these exactly? So PFAS, it stands for per and polyphorical substances. They're called forever chemicals because they stick around in the environment for a very long time. They're found in drinking water, groundwater, surface water, soil, air, fish, plants and other natural resources. Nice, scary long list there. And litigation over these chemicals is so widespread because for ages, they were used in a wide array of commonly used products. But now they've been linked to serious health problems, including cancer and thyroid damage. The reach and extensive presence of these chemicals, not that I will pretend to be an expert, we're doing sort of a Cliff Notes version here, but their sheer prevalence suggests that there's been quite a bit of history around litigating about their presence, how to regulate them, how to mitigate them, whatever it might be. Let's get up to speed on this litigation against 3M specifically. What brought us to the settlement that we're talking about this week? Yeah, it's absolutely sprawling, the litigation here. And a bellwether trial, the very first in this litigation against 3M was actually about to kick off in early June, but the judge paused it the morning it was set to begin because the parties said a deal was imminent. And in that trial, 3M was poised to fight a Florida city's claims that the firefighting foam had seeped into its drinking and bathing water. And the plaintiff said that 3M and a handful of other companies knew that the foam contained PFAS, but didn't do anything about it. So onto the settlement... 
It provides funding for public authorities to treat PFAS contamination. That's according to 3M. And the company also said it will pay out that $12.5 billion over 13 years. And it plans to take a $10.3 billion pre-tax charge in the second quarter to reflect that deal. 3M also said that it has already begun winding down manufacturing that involves Forever Chemicals. And it plans to, quote, exit all PFAS manufacturing by the end of 2025. Now, here is what an attorney for the water systems had to say. PFAS has contaminated the entire planet, including our nation's drinking water. Holding to account those responsible for this unprecedented environmental disaster was our goal. Having the offenders pay for the cost of remediation and cleanup is just the beginning. Well, you did mention, in addition to him saying it's just the beginning, that PFAS litigation is also perhaps trending or at least picking up some steam. Tell us more about that. What else are we seeing out there? We're seeing some more deals, actually. This week, the American unit of a Belgian chemical company announced a $393 million settlement with the state of New Jersey. And that was also in litigation over forever chemical contamination from the company's facility in the state. And if that one garners court approval, it's also a really big historic deal because it is the largest financial agreement for a single contaminated site in state history. Um, And 3M has also separately reached another deal. This one was confidential with that Florida city that it was supposed to face in the Bellwether trial. So we don't know the details of that, but that also has happened within the last week or so. And actually shortly before the massive 3M deal, several other companies, including DuPont and Cortiva, announced a $1.1 billion deal with water companies over polluted water. So I think it's safe to say that we're going to keep seeing some settlements on this front um, in the near future. So let's stay tuned. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a closely watched case about what accommodations employers have to make for religious workers. The justices revived the discrimination claims of a postal worker who'd objected to working on Sundays and raised the bar on what kind of accommodation is so burdensome that an employer cannot be expected to honor it. Here to break down the case for us is one of our Employment Authority editors-at-large and a favorite returning pro se guest, Vin Guerreri. Welcome back to the show, Vin. What's up, everyone? I love talking employment with you. I'm excited to get into this. This was a big one we were waiting for on our employment team. So just set us up with the facts here. What was going on with this postal worker? Yeah, let's do it. So the uh, this case is about a, you mentioned a postal worker who is an evangelical Christian and because of his religious beliefs did not want to work on Sundays, which were his Sabbath day, his holy day. Um, the post office uh, and there's a little bit of a convoluted fact pattern in this case, but the gist of it is that he ended up being punished for missing about, uh, give or take, about two dozen Sundays of work. And you think, you know, the post office doesn't usually deliver mail on Sunday, which uh, most people kind of assume to be a given. In this case, the particular post office that he was working at had a contract where they would deliver uh, parcels for Amazon on Sundays. So that's why uh, they had a lot of Sunday work. 
I'm glad you cleared that up because people I know, do wonder, yeah. like, wait, it's not delivered on Sunday. But of course, our Amazon life now where there's so many packages going through the mail. You got to get that mail quick. There's no, uh, there's no waiting for it. Um, so this worker eventually had to quit um, because he was disciplined for missing work and he believed he, he was going to end up being fired anyway. So he ended up just leaving the job. Small rural post office, not, you know, one of these places that has, you know, dozens and dozens of employees worked in a place that only had a handful of people working there. So if one person is not able to do the work on Sundays, it ended up falling on, you know, the handful, two, three, four of his colleagues who had to pick up a lot of the slack while he was out. So a couple of the key questions in this case, uh, a smaller question was whether employers, when they... uh, turn away a religious accommodation if they can take into account uh, the potential impact that it has on a person's coworkers picking up their work, picking up, you know, assignments and things like that. But the bigger question here and what the, what the high court really focused on is what the standard should be, what the test should be for a company, for an employer to be able to legally refuse a religious accommodation. Well, maybe we can get into that a little deeper. Let's start with, before this case happened, this had come up a bunch. I mean, this isn't a new area of the law, religious discrimination in the workplace. So what had been the test to figure out if an accommodation was too burdensome before? So it's called the Hardison test, named after a a Supreme Court decision from the late 1970s called TWA versus Hardison. The gist of it is that an employer can deny an accommodation if whatever burden it imposes on that employer is a term of art here, quote unquote, more than de minimis. So if it's more than trivial, more than, you know, just kind of a passing inconvenience on the employer, the employer can say, okay, we we can't give you a religious accommodation. We can't give you what you're looking for. Um, In this case, in Gerald Groff's case, it was being able to work on Sunday. Post office said, You know, it's more than a trivial burden to have one of our, you know, not very many postal delivery people uh, miss a day of work. So they were able to legally deny the accommodation, according to the Third Circuit that ruled on the case. What the Supreme Court did here is they didn't overturn the 1977 case. They used the word clarify a lot in this decision. They were kind of going out of their way to uh, purposely not overturn it. They used the word explain. They tried to explain it and kind of gave it a new gloss of paint, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. What exactly are they trying to clarify, quote unquote, and explain here? So they raised the bar a little bit. Um, Instead of de minimis, instead of a trivial burden that an employer has to show, they changed it to the language used in the opinion is substantial increased cost in relation to the way a business is operated. So we're going from trivial to substantial costs, basically. Uh, The gap between those two is the difference in what the test is going to be for employers going forward to be able to tell someone we can't accommodate whatever your religious belief might be. The gap between those two seems, in fact, to be not trivial. Those are very different. You know, the de minimis level versus a substantial cost. I mean, that seems like a a big change here. Interestingly, the Supreme Court didn't go as far as uh, the postal worker wanted here. So the postal worker 
in practice won this case because the case had been dismissed, but now it's reopened. But the Supreme Court didn't go as far as he wanted them to go in crafting what the new test was going to be. The uh, postal workers' attorneys had wanted a test that was maybe a little bit closer to the Americans with Disabilities Act, which sets a pretty high bar for an employer who wants to deny a religious, uh, excuse me, a disability accommodation. In this case, the Supreme Court uh, kind of said that might be going a little too far. They tried to find maybe a little bit of a middle ground between what the de minimis test had been to what the ADA requires. And that whole kind of substantial increased cost maybe sort of maybe splits a difference a little bit in some ways. Um, what that all means in practice, I guess, kind of remains for another day. We're not really sure how courts are going to interpret some of this stuff, how courts are going to read substantial increase costs and what that actually entails. So that's going to be something that we're going to have to find out as some of these cases start playing out under the new standard. Yeah, it's interesting that they landed somewhere, like you said, a little bit in between, you know, a, a more stringent test than de minimis, but maybe not as far as what's required under the ADA. I think that maybe explains in some part how we got a unanimous decision here, which I was honestly a little surprised that this was a unanimous ruling. What did you think, Ben? Uh, I mean, anytime you get a unanimous Supreme Court ruling, it's, it's going to raise an eyebrow. That doesn't happen really too often. And especially when you're creating either creating a new legal standard or in this case, they, you know, however you want to word it, maybe they tweaked it, revised it, you know, however you want to frame that that they all agreed on what the new standard should be is always kind of interesting, but it also shows that maybe they didn't go as far as they otherwise might have gone. Uh, one of the interesting things is you mentioned that they sort of agreed on this. Uh, Justice Sotomayor had a concurrence where she kind of went out of her way to say, you know, hey, uh, it was the right thing for us to do to uh, not take up the postal workers' invitation to exclude the impact that an accommodation has on his or her colleagues. And that's one of the points that the Supreme Court kind of went out of its way to make clear that an employer can take into account what effect that an accommodation would have on someone's coworkers. But they also kind of, you know, kind of couched that a little bit and they said, you can't, an impact on a coworker can't be, they don't like the fact that one of their colleagues is practicing religion in the workplace in the first place. So, it, you know, that kind of seemed like they tried to thread a needle between these sort of competing interests here. The, you know, you want people to be able to get religious accommodations, but at the same time, they also did acknowledge that, you know, there could be adverse impacts on coworkers that shouldn't 100% be ignored by an employer. You mentioned that you know, it kind of remains to be seen how this is going to play out moving forward. But do you have any early predictions on the the impact here? It's tough to say because they didn't really get very much into what some of these new terms of art mean. What's um, a poor employer to do out there with this whole new standard? I mean, they've been working under one assumption for decades, and this definitely changes things. What is What does the word substantial mean to you? <laughs> Great question. And that uh, it's it's totally valid question, and some courts are going to have to uh, figure that one out at some point. Um, 
could be even in this case because the postal workers case is going back to the Third Circuit to get reevaluated under the new substantial increase cost language. And we'll see what they say. Then we are going to have so much to watch together. And I know this is going to keep you really busy writing about it because I think employers are going to be looking for clarity under this new standard. And we're going to have to see that play out in the courts. Thanks for explaining this one. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Good to speak with you. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And honestly, this is just one of our recurring segments at this point. Alex, what's going on in Bachelor Nation? We're going back to the well. I honestly can't remember the last time we did a, is there a legal services professional work uh, on the Bachelor or Bachelorette contestant pool? We might have missed a season or two there. I'm not going to tell you that we're, that we're giving you extensive wall-to-wall coverage. I'm just saying when it occurs to us, we're going to do it. And it's occurred <laughs> to us here. The newest season of The Bachelorette, I believe it's uh, season 20, debuted uh, this past Monday. Charity Lawson is the new Bachelorette. No Any relation? No, oh. no relation to yours, truly. It's okay. I, I've gotten that question a lot. No relation. And folks, there is at least one lawyer that I'm aware of His name is James Pierce, and a few things to know about this guy. He is an associate at Mayor Brown, which, first of all, it lit up the group chat even before we had a production (laughs) meeting about this episode. That's a little different than a lot of the lawyers who blow through the Bachelor universe because a lot of them work for boutiques or smaller shops or even just kind of like their own law offices that may or not be all that active. Mayor Brown is a serious firm, and I know you guys, that struck you guys as well as me. It absolutely did. I was excited to see it. Um, You know, it feels even more than usual when we have a lawyer in Bachelor Nation to talk about. This feels even more like a collision of our worlds. Yeah, he's like a real Law 360 type lawyer. Yeah, he is. Big, big white collar law firm. Um, according to according to his LinkedIn uh, and, and his firm bio, he works in the firm's banking and finance practice. He joined in 2021 after uh, a summer associate gig at the firm in 2020. I'm seeing out there on, on the net, he, he graduated from Purdue undergrad in economics and then the University of Michigan for his JD in 2021. So, and he's from uh, Indiana originally. He's in the firm's Chicago office now. Midwest guy, much like myself. And I you would love to see it. So I guess much at this synergy point, for you, Alex. We have uh, same last name of our bachelorette. Well, We've got sure, this guy right. from the Midwest. We've got lawyers, uh, you know, a lawyer here for all of us to enjoy. I do want to take one moment, though, to say this. I loved seeing him pop up as uh, one of our contestants, one of our bachelors here. But I am always so tickled when we go the opposite direction, too, and have the people who have seemingly made up titles that are not professions or at least surprise me. Oh, of course. Yeah. And the the biggest one for me this time was the guy who is the world record jumper. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. He just just kept jumping on stuff. It was (laughs) quite the scene. 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's always a few oddities like that. And honestly, I thought our guy, James, and I do want to say, I mean, we, by virtue of him being a lawyer, we're always like, oh, yeah, that's our guy. Recent seasons of The Bachelor, I will, like, reserve, uh, I don't know, whatever whatever disclosures are going to come out about this person <laughs> uh, later in the season. Maybe there will be none. Maybe he's, like, an awesome guy. Maybe he wins. I don't know, but... I just want to say that I thought he he got like a scant edit in the first hour and change. And I thought he might just be well, a little bit of the chaff, but but then it turned. But then Alex, yeah, I was so excited. So the next thing we see from him, he's in the middle of the cocktail portion of the evening. He's sitting down with our leading lady and he's like, I've got a box here from my mom. Oh, yeah. And then he did. I mean, this is at least the conceit on the show. He opened the box, and then in the box, there is a letter from his mom or his family, I guess, Incredible play. Incredible play. It's an incredible play, basically saying like, hey, Charity, we really respect you. We watched you on Zach's season of The Bachelor, and we hope you find love. We also hope it's with our son, James. And then in addition... Uh, because he is from an apple farm in Indiana, there is both apple cider and donuts in the box. And I assume, I hope, apple cider donuts, which is about like one of the most, what one of the tastiest treats you could ever give to somebody. I have to tell you, yeah. I was a little sort of like, you know, he just seemed like an average seeming, nice, normal guy, but nothing that really caught my attention as Definitely. so many people I know do exactly in what those you're first saying. episodes. But as soon as I saw that apple cider, and I, like you, Alex, presumed those were apple cider donuts. I'm thinking, yeah. Immediately, I was like, well, I mean, I'm in love. I don't know what else she would want. <laughs> what else could she need? This seems like an ideal man. It's a great gesture. Haley, did you have any sort of uh, night one thoughts? I, I shared your, your sentiment that at the beginning, I was a little nervous. He, you know, he got like a five second, hi, I'm James yeah. limo exit. Definitely. Kind yeah. of a kind of a normie limo exit there, which is fine. Which I is saw fine. in the lower third, he's a lawyer, and I was like, oh, okay, well, this maybe we'll talk about it for two seconds. But no, we're gonna talk about it for like, I don't know, four minutes. Could be great. Yeah. Guys, I just think like the play of the apple cider and the donuts. I mean, they say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, but I think that is gender neutral. I Definitely. think that goes oh, both ways. Come on now. Let's, and let's I'm, be serious. I really feel like if you're going to remember anything, that's a really good, I mean, that was a really good move. It is. Plus the note from the mom. I mean, one yeah. thing, just yeah, lock one him thing in. that I, that remains to be seen here though, this is on its face, a family play. Yeah. And he could have been acting, but he seemed surprised at what was in the box. So what we're going to have to watch for in the coming episodes is if he also shares the strategy that his parents have with navigating this game. The strategy of the strategy of wholesome sweetness. Come on. Yeah. Like maybe he isn't himself a great player, but his parents are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we'll have to wait <laughs> hey, and look, see. We've seen too many calculating people <laughs> on past episodes and yeah. past seasons. So if the calculations are coming from a lovely Midwestern mom out there, I'm so there for that. I will watch that all day. That's the kind of five-dimensional night one bachelorette analysis. <laughs> you can only get on oh, yeah. per se from Haley and Amber and myself. A couple other notes here. 
I was doing some superficial uh, social media scrolling for the dude, combining a couple of the both the apple orchard or apple farm, whatever he grew up on with the cider and his legal training, his IG handle, his Instagram handle is, I kid you not, Cider Esquire. So God bless. <laughs> God I love bless. him more and more. I don't know. Everybody's in this to be an influencer. I don't even consider that a pejorative anymore. So it's fine. I don't mind it because it's great. I last love it. thing, yeah. Last thing, his bio on on the on the ABC on the Bachelorette site says he's fluent in French. The, okay. the, the language of love. Uh, the guy is at least a dark horse. I mean, he's not a favorite. He didn't get the first impression, Rose. Uh, but, I mean, I would say from where we're sitting today, after night one, one to watch. He is. And also, my I really would love to have been a fly on the wall at Mayor Brown when he was like, yo, <laughs> um, I know I'm like a second year associate or yeah, whatever, yeah. but I have actually been a cast in The Bachelor. Got to pursue those dreams. trying to get him on, honestly. We I, really I mean, should. I know, we should. Yeah. I would love to talk to him. We, we have that in the many past, things you know, we talk about. Mixed results. Anyway, um, so I don't know. If you care about this, uh, if he goes deep, we'll provide you another update or two. Uh, but we've gone plenty long. Jam-packed show this week. So uh, I think this is a good place to leave it. Great place to stop. Thanks so much for explaining all that, Alex. And the sleuthing about his Instagram name, Perfect. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Yeah. yeah. And Happy thanks, to. Haley, as always, for being with me today and sharing all this Bachelor knowledge. My pleasure, as always. We also want to thank our producers, Keller McCann and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Vin Guerreri, and our contributing reporters, Catherine Marfin and Emily Field. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, that's when you can leave us a written review and five stars. It really does help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.